0: Today, I have the pleasure of talking with my friend, Brendan Mowat, who is now in the high and mighty state of uh, being a PhD candidate under Tasha Stanton and Laura Mosley at UniSA, uh, but back in his humble beginnings, was one of my clinical supervisors in my uh, exercise physiology degree. Uh, Brendan, welcome.
1: Thanks, mate. It's good to, good to be here. uh Look, I just want to make sure it's clear that when we, you were doing supervision under us, that we learned just as much from you as you probably did from us, if not more. The opposite way it should have. Uh,
0: those were fun days. Um, great. And so uh, today we're going to talk about. So I want to get you to to introduce yourself uh, a little bit in a little bit more depth in a moment, but um, today we are going to talk about how. Uh, practitioner expectation, or sorry, practitioner beliefs influence clients' beliefs and, and client outcomes, even when the practitioners don't actually state their beliefs. So uh, practitioner beliefs can implicitly influence client beliefs and behaviours and outcomes. Uh, so yeah, can you give us a little bit of history of you and particularly, you know, your interest in this topic?
1: Yeah, absolutely, mate. Um, well, I started off as a personal trainer and then went and studied exercise physiology. And so I've been an exercise physiologist for the last 10 years. Um, and then about four years ago, um, I decided I want to understand a little bit more about how we know things, how we come to sort of understand the world and get a little bit closer to the truth of how things work. And so I went back and, um, did my masters of research. Um, and now, currently doing my PhD as well. and I think um, one of the uh, components that led to me um, being kind of interested in this area that you've just alluded to in terms of um, our beliefs as practitioners and how that can influence uh, the, the patient or, or just the person who's coming in for Pilates or exercise or whatever context it might be in is, um, how how what we think, what we do, not only what we say, can really influence uh, that that individual's perception of themselves, their behaviour, and you know how they engage in in healthcare and physical activity and all of these other things we know are associated with good health and longevity as well. So, um, and and that's kind of what's sort of formulated a lot of my questions in my research and and so
0: on. So at a at a very Kind of super basic level, you know. We we understand the the interaction between um, the practitioner and the client, you know, the instructor and the client, as being just a physical one. Okay, you know, I give you exercises and you, you know, strengthen your glutes or whatever. Okay, and there was some some kind of physical thing that happened, and the result is your glutes got stronger. Um, and then uh, as we as we you know, move forwards through, I guess through history the through the history of of the research literature in this topic, and also just for me through my personal <laughs> journey of understanding how it all works, is then you understand that oh, actually no, there's more that happens around that interaction. There's there's a conversation and there's a context and there's uh, you know um, words that you use that might um, enhance somebody's um, self efficacy or you know their confidence that they can uh controller and situation or they might mo- they might detract from their self efficacy. Uh, and then so then it's not just the you don't you see the the interaction between the client and the practitioner not just as a physical event, but also there's a social interaction and a, you know, there's an educational component, whether you're intentionally educating your client or not, there's some education happening. And uh, you know, so that's kind of like I guess what I think of as level 2 of the thinking around this and then what you're thinking of is what i guess i'm thinking of as level 3 or the meta meta level where wrapped around that that interaction and those those words that are spoken and the instructions that you give and and whatever there's some kind of implicit level of communication that goes on where you're not specifically stating something to a person but somehow they that belief is transferred to that person by some other nonverbal, you know, by the context, by who knows what, how. But basically, the patient or the client goes away believing a certain thing or behaving in a certain way, not because you specifically said, hey, you should believe this or behave this way, but just because it was kind of in the in the water, so to speak.
1: Mm. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) You've touched on so much there because, I mean, like every interaction we have, right, is embedded in this psychosocial context and, you know, words matter so much and, you know, these explicit things that we do becomes really, really important. And I think we kind of know that, um, you know, even if we haven't read any of the research around that, it kind of makes sense that if we tell someone that they're broken, that they're probably going to feel more broken. Um, You know, it's how we communicate. But then, it, what's really fascinating is this, this component that what we believe can be transmitted through other means beyond our words, the way in which we act the, in, in, in ways that we can't even necessarily pick up when we, when we film ourselves and have an external person kind of watching it. They go, I actually didn't pick up anything in particular. Um, but that, that, that things are going on. Um, so what we truly believe, um, can be really important for us to kind of reflect on and even work on, perhaps as a skill, um, that can have real effects on that person that we're working with in terms of the way that they might be perceiving themselves, the way that they might go on and behave, um, in, in their world as well.
0: I want to, you know, I want to spend a lot of time unpacking that because that's really the the topic of your research. And there's, as part of doing your research, you've read voluminously in this field. So you're very up in in the the literature in this area. But I want to just um, get off the bus or have a little momentary stop on the way, um, maybe for just a little quick picnic or something. um, So we can (laughs) uh, talk about um, yeah, so you mentioned, um, you know, words, you know, words make a difference and word, words matter. Uh, and, um, I just want to sort of unpack that for a moment, or well, maybe a little bit more than a moment, but to, to, to spend a little bit of time just exploring, you know, well, what does that mean? You know, what does that even mean? And, and I think, you know, piggybacking on that, I'd like to explore the idea of, and this is something we were talking about actually just off air before we we hit record. Is the the notion of uh, you know because when you said to me like oh, if we say to somebody that they're they're broken that you know they're going to take the message probably that they are broken and and that probably not going to be a useful thing for them to believe. Um, but I think that you know a lot of the time when these messages are said, and I've you know I'm sticking my hand up here. I've been I've said that to people many times. Um, That it's all, it's all done with the best intent and that the intent to help the person to be safe, right? So I watch out. Don't bend when you squat because that will damage your back. You know, so I'm doing that with the best of intention to keep my clients safe. And, and, and I think so. I I guess even beforehand, I would like to explore this idea of like, well, surely, you know, being, being safe must be a good thing. Right. I mean, if you could be more safe or less safe, surely we'd all like to be more safe. You know, if you could have like more plague or less plague, you'd like to have less plague. You know, more terrorists or less terrorists, you'd like to have less terrorists. So, you know, if you could have more like safety in the Pilates class or less safety, surely you'd want to have more safety. You know, like what could be wrong with that? Makes so
1: much sense, (laughs) doesn't it? It's um a, a real fascinating idea, isn't it? Um, and I like to refer to it as the safety paradox. Where this idea of the more safety we have or the more screening or the more vigilant we are, the, you know, the better the outcomes are going to be for that individual. But what we tend to see is that's not the case. That, yes, there's a threshold where, you know, some safety is important. We don't want to just necessarily go and do ridiculous things because that doesn't lead to better outcomes for our survival as a species. But- there's also a point where if we're so safe or protecting, we actually create a fear. And that fear can be um, something that stops us from engaging in our environment. So, essentially having more things that we can interact with in our environment, the less likely we are to probably feel like we can uh, independently go and um perform the behaviours to achieve an outcome. So, let's say things like exercise, that we could do it by ourselves because we are become so worried and concerned, potentially, that we actually need to have someone watching us, making sure that we're exercising correctly, that we're doing these sorts of things. But when we do this, there, there's harms involved. And that might be in reducing that self-efficacy, so that belief that they can actually go and do that themselves. It might be financially, that now they actually might be in a situation where they can't afford to keep going back and doing sessions. However, they're not confident to go and do it by themselves because they want to be safe Mm. and they don't feel like they're safe because of what they've been told or the way that the interactions they have had with um, fitness people or healthcare practitioners have been conducted. So there ends up being this kind of unnecessary over-vigilant fear uh, around physical activity, movement, engagement Mm. within that environment.
0: Mm.
1: So, it's difficult, I think, to kind of necessarily go, all right, so what is safe for this individual and what's not safe? But there are some really clear guidelines and some um, really good resources out there we can use to go, all right, actually, beyond here, we should be encouraging people to gradually build up um, their, you know, their, their tolerance, their exposure to all of these different stimuli and their ability to adapt is, yes, it's finite to an extent, but it's far more broad than what I think a lot of us actually inherently believe within us. And so we might be, uh, I, I guess, transferring some of our own fears and beliefs onto these individuals that might be limiting their, their own capacity to engage and move and do these things.
0: And I think they're, you know, rather than, uh, conceiving safety and danger on a continuum with danger at one end and safety at the other end, I think it might be more useful to think of it as danger at both ends and safety somewhere in the middle where there's, there, it's, it's dangerous. And, and I th- we can relate this directly to say the, the the injury risk, um, with, uh, exercise training with load, right? So if you apply way too, too much load, that's dangerous, right? If you know, if it's your first ever, week of training, we're like, okay, let's do a hundred sets of maximal deadlifts, you know, week one. It's like, okay, there's a good chance you're going to get injured there. Um, So too much load is is dangerous. But then on the other hand, if you never exercise for decades, that increases your injury risk because you haven't built a tolerance to load in your body. So there's an increased risk there. If you step off the curb wrong, you'll, you know, damage yourself because your body doesn't have any, any, uh, Capacity to to tolerate that, so there's da- there's danger in be in being too gung ho. There's also danger in in being in avoiding load, right? So the 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 safest path is somewhere in the middle where you gradually build up a tolerance to load, um, and the, you know that's kind of based on the just the the human um, physiology. But I think also even with um, just in general with things like uh, I don't have the literature in front of me, but we know. We say like something uh, like uh, mammograms for breast cancer screening for women. That you'd think like, okay, well, wouldn't it be you know better if we can catch this cancer earlier and therefore tr- you know treat it with less invasive treatments and and have better outcomes for our patients? And the answer is yes, up to a point, right? So when you screen women who are 60 for breast cancer, even when they are symptom free. Then you catch a lot of cancers early and you do have better outcomes for those people. But when you screen women who are 50, that, that benefit decreases because you're also catching a lot of false positives, you know, women who, who have a lump in their breast, but it's not actually cancerous or it's a cancer that is slow growing and they would have died with it 30 years later, not of it, you know. And then when you screen women who are 40, you end up actually doing more harm than good because you end up giving these, you know, all these women, who don't actually need it, like radical mastectomies and radio treatment, and you know all of this other stuff. And so there are actual harms associated with screening. So, so, so the the notion that you know more safety is better is, yeah, it's it's not true in most in most areas that we're interested in.
1: Yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, and we we see this over screening and over uh, and the you know the related over-treatment um, and even over medicalization of, of normal findings as well being really quite a large burden at the moment. So, it's, it's kind of this growing field of literature um, that's really fascinating because you're right, it, it seems sort of to make common sense that the more screening, the better. However, what we actually see in certain areas is this has actually created more of a problem and created um, more disability and uh, really added to, to, to the issue we've got going on here. And we did a, a study just recently um, and it's just in preparation for publication. So, I can, I can touch on it a little bit because we've um, just presented it at, at a conference um, in Toronto um, where we had people with pain who were either randomised to being screened with a depression screen or randomised to another questionnaire altogether. But they all did this like…
0: So uh, we're screening screening them with this question. When you say depression screen, it's a tool, like basically it's a a questionnaire. It's on a scale of one to seven, you know, one being strongly agree, seven being strongly disagree, something like that. Is that, you know, how how, how much do you agree with the following statements? You know, life's not worth living. You know, what's the point? Yeah, we're all going to die anyway.
1: Yeah, exactly. So, it was basically a questionnaire that was like nine questions and how much do you agree with the statement over the last, you know, um, two weeks, you know, how, how have you felt sort of thing um, with zero to three and then a higher score, the more depressive symptoms you have essentially. And so, they're randomized to either receiving that or, or another questionnaire and they all – actually um, completed a single item question. So, a question that just asked them about their mood over the last two weeks and how how they'd rate that from basically zero to 10. Um, and what we actually found was that those who, who were screened six months later were actually significantly or had significantly more depressive symptoms than those who were not screened. Now, it, it's not to say that we shouldn't screen altogether or we shouldn't have conversations about mental health. That's definitely not what I'm I'm sort of saying here. But it kind of highlights how there are actually some associated harms with doing certain things that we might not necessarily be aware of as well. So, it, it causes us to, I think, reflect about how we have conversations around, in in this case, mental health or how we think about how do we make sure that we um, find the people who really do need support and help and so they get that help and that support but also mitigate the harms that might be um, created through some of the the things that we've just taken for granted as not being harmful at all. And so that was a really interesting finding because we actually made sure that we controlled for a whole bunch of different factors in terms of their pain intensity, catastrophizing beliefs, um, their actual functional scores, And then even um, look to see if any of this relationship was mediated through actual the referral from the the clinician to a psychological trained professional or the attendance for it as well. So, those things didn't really have much of an impact on that relationship. So, it seemed to be that screening that was important.
0: And do you think there's any kind of like a power of suggestion in the screening itself? Like if you come in here and I say, Brendan, have you been feeling depressed over the last two weeks? And you're like… Yeah, and now you mentioned that I have been feeling depressed. And have you been feeling really depressed, Brendan? And has, has life been really flat for you? You know, and so are we implanting these suggestions in people's minds? Well well, maybe, because I
1: mean, we're at that stage of speculation of like yeah. what is going on here? So I can't say with any degree of certainty of like what what explains what we're seeing in, in these sorts of findings? And, and one of them is exactly that, you know, we're thinking perhaps this person thought they were doing okay. And now they're reading through these questions that are highlighting that maybe they're not doing so well, that maybe they are more sad and more, more feeling hopeless or useless than that they actually thought. They're putting cogn- cognitive effort into some of these ideas that they otherwise wouldn't have been. And they would have just got on with their lives. Maybe. Right, well, maybe it's related maybe. to
0: like medical student hypochondria, where you're reading all of those, you know, diagnostic <laughs> criteria of the, all of these esoteric diseases, and you're like, oh, "Holy crap, I've got those symptoms! I think I've got de Quervain syndrome," you know. <laughs> <laughs> and then next week, it's like, you know, you've got something else.
1: <laughs> yeah, very, very much that, and you know, or or, or is it? And, and this is one thing that we didn't capture is whether or not clinicians were going, "Oh, actually, you fit into the." Um, moderate to severe depression, you know, group. And so, whether or not just being, yeah, whether or not that label had a, had an effect on it. And we do know that there, in terms of the diagnosis literature, when we label something, that, that can have negative um, impacts as well. It can also have some positive impacts in some cases, but we're now we're kind of talking about, um, that actually, a new type of healthcare intervention is what we call de-diagnosis. So when it doesn't serve a purpose, that we actually take some of these labels away from people that might give them freedom and might help them to re-engage in in healthy behaviours that lead to better outcomes.
0: Yeah, that's fascinating, and I I look forward to reading that uh, and the rest of the rest of your research as well. Um, the you know, there's a bunch of studies that I can think of, and I can't I can't think of the authors or the years. I'll I'll, I'll drag them out and put them in the show notes as, if I can. But we know that um, early MRI uh, for people with back pain predicts worse outcomes. So regardless of what they find or don't find on the MRI, just just getting an MRI early on uh, actually leads to worse outcomes um, because they are very likely to find something because. Regardless of your age and pain and injury status, like we've all got something going on in our back, a bulge or an itis or a nosis or a apathy or something in there. Um, and, uh, then they find it and you get over medicalized. And, and there's another, um, there's another study I'm thinking of which looked at, uh, you know, and, and I think that one of the, um, things that people often that I've heard said a lot, uh, in defence of you know these diagnostic labels like you you know disc bulge or, or whatever it might be is that well well clients really want to know you know they really want a diagnosis they want to understand you know why does my back hurt and I think that's a true statement clients do want to know that but uh, th- this one study uh, I found found that actually give them a di- uh, a a biomedical diagnostic label wasn't reassuring for most people because now they like okay great that's a relief i know what's causing it but yeah great the good news is i'm fucked. you know like Mm. (laughs) my back's not going to get better
1: (laughs) yeah yeah absolutely And, and it makes me wonder you know what 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 is that that diagnosis serving as and and i think for for many of us and and you know people who are experiencing pain or one of a million other things is that it helps with our sense-making, because if we've got a bit of an idea of what it is, then we can actually take affirmative action towards, you know, a a positive outcome. And there are some diagnoses that when it's like, actually, when that's accurate, there is a specific course of treatment that leads to better outcomes. Unfortunately, with pain, many, many, uh, much of the time, that's really not the case because we know pain is so complex and there's so many factors feeding into to that experience. Um, so, rather than providing a specific biomedical diagnosis, I wonder if we could be instead helping them make sense of it through other means and through through narrative or through you know, I think this might be where some pain education could be really helpful so people can understand that actually there might be some tissue that's been a little bit irritated or um, that there is some, you know, maybe there is a bit of an injury going on. But there's a whole lot of things that are, that are occurring right now that is leading to this experience of pain. And these are the things that we know that can be really helpful for getting you back to what you love doing. To decrease your symptoms to that sort of thing, and everyone's just a little bit different in terms of the time frame, and everyone can be a little bit different to what's helpful for that analgesia or that pain relief in that in that short period of time. So, how about we explore some of those things together? And I think we can really dethreaten what's these you what know, what people are really worried and concerned about, while still validating their experience, providing some sense making around what's going on. And a way forward that they can engage with and have some control of as well moving forward. So, I wonder if that's something we need to be spending a little bit more time developing our skills around as as clinicians. But I think this is also in the realm of Pilates and personal trainer, um, you know, areas as well. Because we do, you know, know that people with pain rock up in there and we can be, you know, kind of broad but... Specific and validating in terms of um, how we interact, the words we use, the things we say, and the way that we can um, help them have some ways to, to move move forward, move move towards recovery.
0: Mm, but that is such a good point. That for many, uh, you know, diseases there is a specific treatment that matches to a specific diagnosis. So if you're having a hemorrhagic stroke or a thrombotic stroke, or you know, the treatment's very different and uh, or if you're having, you know, whatever, some particular type of cancer or whatever. It's like the the particular chemotherapy or whatever that works is going to be different depending on the diagnosis. And so it is very important to have a diagnosis in many cases. But like I say, in chronic pain, um, regardless of body size, whether it's shoulder, back, neck, knee, whatever, uh, really the diagnosis doesn't dictate the treatment 99 times out of 100. Once we've rolled out red flags... Um, which are extremely rare, then uh, basically we know that pretty much any treatment's going to work the same amount on a population level, on an average level, and that the, the beneficial effects of almost all treatments aren't related to the primary thing that we're trying to change. So for example, when you do strength training for a low back pain, whether you get stronger or not, or how much stronger you get has no impact on how much, pain relief you get, when you retrain your transverse abdominus for low back pain, whether you get better or timing your transverse abdominus or whatever has no impact on how much pain relief you get. Like when you stretch for back pain, how much more flexible you get has no impact on how much back pain relief you get. And yet all of these things help, right? Even when you get uh, radiofrequency denervation of your discs, they 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 kill the nerves in your discs with microwave radiation. That doesn't impact your pain any more or less than going for a walk every day. Um, so it's like the, the specific, or we, we do a, a disc, spinal fusion, um, for low back pain is not more effective than just doing some physical therapy or going for a walk or doing some heavy deadlifting or retraining your transverse abdominis or whatever. And so all of these things seem to help to some degree at about the same degree, but it doesn't, the diagnosis. I mean, you could get someone who doesn't have any visible changes on MRI, and give them a spinal fusion. My bet is it would be just as effective as somebody who had a terrible disc collapse, you know, and gave them the same spinal fusion. And then you could have that person with a terrible disc collapse and not give them the spinal fusion, send them for a walk for a year, It'd probably have the same benefit. You know, So it really doesn't seem to matter, you know, on a population level, what treatment we match with what diagnosis.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I don't know if we're going to go a little bit off tangent here, but it makes me wonder, you know, what are the shared mechanisms then behind all of these things? Because, I mean, all of those things you listed have an explanation associated with it from, from different fields and um, different areas of research. You know, there's the spinal fusions. It's like, well, we're actually reducing the amount of um, micro movements from the adjacent vertebra on that adjacent vertebra. We're, you know, structurally increasing it um you know with the glute strengthening or transverse abdominus strengthening where we're increasing the stability around the spine there's all of these different narratives which in themselves we know can be actually harmful as well um but then it goes but we do see them work just as well as everything else so what do all of these different interventions and strategies share And this is where we kind of start to look at, you know, the literature around what makes the biggest, you know, impacts to people's pain and their re-engagement back into, you know, their life in terms of improvement in function. And it's things like the way that they get on with, you know, their practitioner. So, possibly, you know, having the trust, feeling like they're a little bit more safe than what they were. Um, Some of their worries and concerns are, are now dealt with maybe they understand a little bit more about their pain or they're they're, they're starting to move a little bit more and they're experiencing, oh, the world doesn't actually fall apart when I do a little bit more. And so, it starts to kind of salami slice your way towards more activity, allowing them to experiment and play a little bit more. That- all of these systems within the body are starting to normalise with a bit of movement and positive psychology and 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 so on. That these these under underpinning things that really kind of drive it, rather than having these narratives about the structure just being completely shot. and We have to fix that structure first, uh, which, like you said, in ninety nine percent of cases, is not the case.
0: Mm. Um, and so we're moving from, and I'm just I've just totally made up these levels. That that's not a real thing. But the level one, um, you know, interaction in, in the in the exercise context, whether it's Pilates or exercise physiology or whatever, is like just it's it's a movement session, and all the only transaction is your body moves and you activate certain muscles and certain things get stretched or stronger or whatever. And now we know that that's all good and it's all great. And you know, I'm an exercise physiologist and a Pilates instructor, so I'm like, you're not going to find anyone who's a bigger advocate of people getting moving you know, <laughs> than me and, and you as well. I know, Brendan. Um, but, the, you know, there, there's not a convincing literature that exercise benefits on pain are bigger than placebo. You know, like there's, I think there's a 2021 meta-analysis that came out that said there's low quality evidence it's not better than placebo, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but it's better than doing nothing. And so there is some there is some benefit and there's there's a tangible benefit but it doesn't you don't have to get stronger, you don't have to get more flexible, you don't have to recruit your transversus abdominis any better. And so like what the heck you know, so so it's so the physical, you know, things, you know, physical mechanisms that we've traditionally attributed to those benefits, oh, my core got stronger, my posture got better, my hips got more mobile, my blah 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 got more blah, blah, blah. You know, my rotator cuff, whatever. Um no all of that turns out to be not supported by Quite a large body of evidence refuting it. And so now we're into, you know, level two where we're saying where there's that, you know, like you said, that sense of safety, um, that might, you know, contribute in the sense making, um, and the, uh, the, the uh, graded uh, exposure, you know, with, with, with safety, with control. So people can, you know, build their self-efficacy and get back to doing their valued activities. And so I just want to highlight something around that notion of safety, because we did kind of just say a bit earlier, that's like, well, there's such a thing as too much safety. And now you're saying like, oh, well, safety, you know, well, safety is good, isn't it? Um, But, I, you know, I I guess I just want to unpack that for a moment, which is that when we say, um, oh, Brendan, you know, watch yourself during that squat, stay safe, keep your spine neutral, Right. Yes, I've used the word safe, but actually the message that you get non, like the the words, be- the the message between the lines there is watch out, you're in fucking danger right now, dude. Like be really careful, right? Whereas if you're squatting and you say like, I'm really worried about how I'm squatting and I look at you and go, nah, you're fine. You're awesome. Just keep going, right? Nothing to worry about here. It's totally fine. That, you know, if you can reassure your client that you're not worried or that they don't need to worry. That's actually much more reassuring. Like my mum had a diagnosis of, um, leukemia, uh, which sounds pretty terrible, but apparently it's this super slow growing thing that she's going to die of old age at the age of 95 and still have it. Um, and, but you know, she was, she had a cold the other week and she was like, Oh, I'm going to die. I've got leukemia. And then, you know, she went along to the doctor and this along to the specialist had a blood test and the specialist was like, you're paranoid you know, go home and (laughs) live your life, you know, (laughs) come back in 40 years. (laughs) Um, And she was like, she was so relieved. She was so relieved. And, and so, you know, that message was genuinely reassuring to her where he basically laughed at her and said, just get over yourself. You know, this, there's nothing to see here folks go on home, you know? And so that to her was reassuring. Like, I mean, obviously she felt like he'd done the proper tests and, and, knew what he was, he wasn't just blowing her off. He was acknowledging her concerns and, and he, you know, he knew what he was talking about, but you know, yes. Yeah, so that message of, of let's be careful, I think, although appropriate sometimes, you know, for instance, in early stages of post-surgical rehab or, or whatever, it's like for your general person who's just in an exercise class is probably like a mammogram for a 30 year old woman. It's probably going to do more harm than good.
1: Yeah, yeah, totally, and I think that's yeah, really important um, that we yeah we delineate between what we mean when we say safety, but you know, having someone feel safe and just by giving them permission to move and to explore, now that's powerful, and that really does move away from that kind of danger end of this continuum that we're they were, we're talking about. So I think yeah, you're right, it's so important um, that what we do and what we say supports that. Appropriately, so that they can feel this sense of safe to explore, to do more, to try a little bit more, to see what else is possible for 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 their experience.
0: Mm, So let's start. Let's move on to this Mm. level three conversation now, which is the the implicit uh, interaction that's happening, the the unspoken communication. Uh, And so there's evidence that um, it goes both ways. So um, I've got a couple of studies in front of me here that we we presented our diploma that where um, pain, there's something called pain behavior, which we all do. And, you know, it's basically, you you know, when you got a sore back, you wince and you put your hand on your back and you move slow. And when you've got the flu, you moan and shuffle, you know, like you do these things. Like if, if you came over to my house and knocked on the door and I answered the door and I had a really sore back, really sore back, you could probably tell pretty quickly that I had a really sore back. Even if I didn't say, hey, I've got a really sore back, you could just look at me the way I'm moving and the way I'm wincing and whatever, or if I was feeling nauseous or had a terrible headache, you could probably tell just from my body language and the way I'm, you know, moving. So those are be- those are pain behaviours, and we use those, you know, to signal socially and to help get our loved ones to make us a cup of tea when we're not feeling great and mm. get out of doing the dishes <laughs> and whatever. <laughs> um, not in a malingering sense, but um, so, but there's. Uh, uh, so we, you know, so this is a measured phenomenon. We, we know that people with pain, you know, do these, but some particular behaviors. And this one study I've got in front of me here, which is, um, from career et al., which I've probably butchered the name 2017. It's called pain behavior mediates relationship between perceived injustice and opioid prescriptions for chronic pain, a collaborative health outcomes information registry study from the general of pain research. And what they basically found was in this, um, situation, the, Pain behavior of the patient was the mediator of how much opioid the medical people prescribed. So, how much I'm clutching my back and moaning, you know, determines basically how much dosage of, of morphine I get. Not, you know, like if you said, oh, on a scale of one to ten, how bad is your pain, or you know, any other kind of measure. it's like it's the pain behavior that mediates that opioid prescription, and that's a, a purely nonverbal you know communication so the patient beliefs or behavior implicitly influences you know medical doctors prescription of like really serious drugs
1: yeah and we see that alongside you know gender and ethnicity having differences as well where they can be completely unconscious but it changes how we how we how we treat how we do things and and i think even though that's in sort of the you know the more the pharmaceutical side of things that we see this similar thing happening in the movement based therapies as well and um uh, uh jp canero um did a study probably 3 4 years ago and he looked at um physiotherapists um, beliefs around uh, lifting yeah right um, so and then explicitly firstly he got them to you know say you know is this dangerous and had like images of people like lifting with a rounded back and whatnot which we now know is actually not a risk factor for um, for back pain and they were all relatively on board with the idea that actually no this is quite you know, this is fine, this is not too bad within within reason. And then the neutral spine, they're like, yep, that's fine too. But then they did this implicit association task where it basically they get um, images of people lifting, flashing up in front of them, and they've kind of got a pair, whether or not it's um, dangerous or safe, essentially with this very quick task. So they're not really thinking about it, they just have to kind of respond with their, their first instinct. And what they actually saw in this implicit association task was that even though they explicitly said, hey, this is safe, fine to do, that many of these um, therapists were harboring this implicit fear around these sorts of tasks. And when we saw this, we actually see that people that do have this kind of implicit association around, um, you know, that round back lifting is... know dangerous or around just these kind of more uh, biomechanical um, rationales to why someone might be having pain they're more likely to um, be on that kind of uh, trying to create over more safety be more vigilant in the way that they conduct their sessions with that individual so how appropriate they think that uh, that person is for engaging in physical activity return to work um, Are all influenced by that, that implicit belief system, not necessarily just what they explicitly say out loud. And so it becomes kind of important that maybe we need to make sure that what we say, that we actually really, truly, viscerally on a deep level believe it. Um, and that might be going, all right, how how do I, how do I kind of, really, truly believe something, and I think we can expose ourselves more to it if we we're, we're not sure we can test ourselves, we can do experiential learning where we go, all right, how about I do more you know spine bending, do some Jefferson curls in the gym or the things that you know I say are fine, but I might not actually do myself. Why am I not doing those myself and so kind of reflecting on that and then exposing ourselves and and, and trying to get to those, those deeper levels of our psyche, I guess.
0: Mm. So that yeah, that's that level of uh, and and we know that um, there's very strong evidence, in fact, that uh, patients get their beliefs from their practitioners. Um, and so when mm. your patient comes in and and you know and actually this is something that I hear people say from time to time, which I I've you know, I'm no psychologist, so I don't really have a psychological opinion on this, but I just think it's not a useful belief to hold as a practitioner. When people say, oh, that person's attached to their pain, well, you know, they they don't want to let go of their pain. I feel like, well, that may or, not, may or may not be true, but I don't think it's a useful belief to hold as a practitioner because you've essentially kind of saying, well, that person doesn't want to get better. So I was like, well in that case you basically are saying like what's well, outside my ability to help this person and so your belief is you can't help this person, so guess what? You're not gonna you are not going you can not help that person. Like
1: <laughs> Yeah, totally. And I, and I think that's like a really nice kind of rule of thumb, nice little heuristic that if you feel that way, like I can't help this person or they're melandering or whatever, that you kind of actually actively find support for them elsewhere. Um, you know, you know, in a, in a nice way, don't, you know, reject them and say, hey, I can't help you. But go, look, I actually know someone around the corner and they're really experienced in this area. And I think that'd be really, really great. And I, I just want the best for you and the best support. If you want to keep working with me, I'm happy to. But, you know, this other person um, might be helpful. But I think we need to be aware that those implicit beliefs of us are important and... May well um, and truly have an impact on that that individual's outcomes. As airy fairy as that might sound, it, it's seemingly an actual thing. So,
0: um, well, and I, I uh, you know, I mean, there's a whole bunch of stuff here, and what the mechanism might be of uh, you know practitioner beliefs influencing patient outcomes, and we, we so we know that um, practitioner. Expectation of recovery, you know, pretty strongly predicts recovery, and you know. So why is that? Is you know, so basically, if we if we ask the physio, you know, on day one, or what do you think is going to happen with Brendan's back? And the physio says, oh yeah, I think Brendan's going to make a full recovery. And then a year later, bop, 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 Brendan made a full recovery. You know, is that because the physio is brilliant and can see the future and could, you know did all the proper tests and knows exactly what's going on, or is that just because for whatever? Possibly mistaken reason. The therapist believed you were going to get better. They treated you as if you were going to get better if you only did your exercises, and they gave you to expect that you were going to get better. And you know, then because you expected you were going to get better, you thought, well, if I just do my exercises, I'll get better. And so it became a self-fulfilling prophecy potentially, right? So then the mechanism might be just a very kind of banal, like when you think it's going to work, you do the things more.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I reckon that's a lovely hypothesis to how this might be working, Raph. And I think this is a really exciting area of research. Obviously, I'm biased because (laughs) (laughs) that's what I decided to go down the path of. But I think you might be right. There's, I think, a lot of these, like, different factors that are influencing um, our behavior and the way we engage when we are in pain or with injury. Um, And... It, it's very much uh, has some, um, you know, that practitioner can really mediate. I think those outcomes um, positively or negatively, and, mm. and I think there's a lot of factors that are probably feeding into this.
0: So, you know, my conversation with Mitch Gibbs, um, you know, his, you know, you know his research, um, where basically they had two groups of people with back pain, and one one group got this. Um, Individually tailored exercise prescription by an exercise physiologist based on a full assessment of flexibility, strength, movement control and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, um, they all got like, you know, highly tailored exercises. The other group literally got no assessment and just a photocopied sheet of a list of generic exercises day one at the clinic. It's like, hi, I'm Raf. Here's your list of exercises. Go over there. There's a mat, you know, go for it sort of thing. Um, they, no, no, they didn't say, here's your list of exercises. They said, these are special exercises for back pain, Brendan. These will really help you. <laughs> and then what do you know, you know, eight weeks later or whatever, both groups improved exactly the same amount. But both groups improved not just the same amount in terms of uh, pain and disability, but also in terms of uh, self-efficacy. And so, um, you know, there's, maybe it's like just, just the, the moment of me handing you that sheet and going, I think these exercises are really going to help you. They're special for back pain, right? Maybe that's all that's needed. <laughs> or maybe it was – you doing the exercise and having that and this is what mitch reckons is that having like just the the session that you spend that extra session where instead of me doing an assessment on you you're just exercising you're getting more mastery experience you know doing that activity and so hence your self-efficacy gets a bit of a head start um you know you know it's all just sort of hypothesizing but um yeah so there's there's th- this very f- fascinating kind of um, um, I think we're at a transition point now where we're we're starting to see very clearly that, you know, the skills that we thought were the key skills of, say, a Pilates instructor or an exercise physiologist, which is like, okay, cueing specific muscles, aligning people in a certain particular correct alignment when they do a squat or a lunge or deadlift or whatever, you know, like all of those kind of mechanical, technical things that we all spent freaking half a decade at university learning, you know, uh, turn out to be like basically unimportant, you know, almost irrelevant to the point of being irrelevant (laughs) for somebody with chronic musculoskeletal pain. And it's, 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 and then we, you know, so then we get to the the level two, which is like the words you use and, you know, all of that. But really, I mean, this, I'm talking now, like, this is the, I don't know, the, the, the Dalai Lama level, um, you know, practitioner, right. Or the, the Patabi Jois level practitioner, the, 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 the former, you know, head of Ashtanga Yoga, where basically, you know, his instruction, you know, to the whole class was breathe, look never, breathe, you know. And they're working through this high level thing, tying themselves up like pretzels and <laughs> all this saying is <laughs> basically nothing. Um And, you know, so it's kind of like the old Michelangelo drawing the perfect circle on the piece of paper. You know, to get the gig in the, in the Sistine Chapel. It's like this, this, so and maybe the Pilates instructor slash exercise physiologist slash, you know, fitness instructor working with chronic pain version of that, is simply being fearless and taking your clients through a workout. Any workout doesn't matter, right? With with any amount of instruction between zero and infinity because it doesn't matter as long as it's affirming, um, you could literally just be like, hey, just I'm going to do a workout. You copy me, you know, (laughs) like it could, it could be, or here's your sheet of exercise or whatever. But if you just genuinely are fearless, you know, like as in you do not fear you, like you feel completely confident that they are perfectly, utterly safe and that all they need is to get moving and be optimistic and they'll be fine, you're probably right. What do you think?
1: I I completely agree. Um, I think, obviously, within reason, you're not – you know, if you're super advanced and, and, and whatnot that you tailor for their, for their <laughs> skill sets. Like load well. management. Yeah, load management. And, you know, what, you know, you want them to have some success with the movement as well. All right. Maybe I I've I, oversimplified. I think that's a given. No, a hundred percent. I think we all know what you, what you meant, Raph. Um, but yeah, completely. I think, yeah, if we can just show that, you know, these movements are, are safe. And, I mean, we, we can still say little things or go, oh, that looks really strong. Oh, you're looking great. Um, You know, we don't need to be over the top with it. But I think just the subtle every now and again, just going, man, you are moving well. That's looking great. That's a tough exercise and you are killing it. Like those little, you know, affirmations can be so powerful and even potentially doing less and less of them over time so they've got more self-efficacy and and whatnot is probably a a nice thing to keep in mind as well. But just showing them that, you know, our bodies can do some incredible things and theirs can. If we create that surprise, and I think that's a, a really interesting thing is as human beings, we're interested by surprise. When we kind of see something that, you know, Magic, for example, when we see someone perform magic and it blows our mind, we're like, whoa, what happened? You're, you're engaged. You want to know more. You want to see more magic. I think it's exactly the same. Well, we've actually got some good data to say it is virtually the same thing. When we're moving and we just do something that's just a little bit outside what we thought we could do, it all of a sudden gives us this little bit of evidence of, wow, that's not what I thought was going to happen. And it allows us to update our internal model, basically our model of how we think the world works and our body works and so on. And as practitioners, clinicians, trainers, whatever we might be, if we can facilitate someone to have a little bit of curiosity, explore and potentially have some of that surprise in every session, then we're doing some awesome things to move them forward to having more options in their world and their life and and essentially less disability by by definition, more function.
0: Mm. But isn't this, I mean, this is all very well and good, isn't it? But it's basically just love and pixie dust, right? We're just, (laughs) you know, this is just like rainbows and unicorns and it's not like, this is not like real things like, you know, biomechanics and stuff, you know, it's not like this is, I mean, it's not like, it's not like suggesting to someone that, you know, their pain's going to improve is going to be as good as like an opioid or something. Would it?
1: Well, yeah, I think there's actually a few physicists out there that would totally disagree um, with with that statement, Raph, as You probably um-
0: there was there was, there was oh. irony in that, folks at home,
1: <laughs> as you are very aware. Um, and and we do we've, we've got some really good theories now of how it is that we we learn and um, you know what. Uh, allows us to kind of engage in our environments and what kind of dictates a lot of these things. And these theories can now be modeled mathematically and mechanistically. So things going on with the body in terms of neurotransmitters and all of this really cool physiology. So we can make these hypotheses and measure these real tangible elements to see what actually happens when we do create, for example, um, a situation where someone experience a surprise. And we do see, you know, these um, uh, neurotransmitters associated with learning, changing in different areas of the brain and nervous system. And we see this associated with different things like reductions in fear and then more broadly engagement with environment. So, we're kind of at the, you know, the very beginning of a really interesting um, space, but it, it's, it's far from airy fairy i mean the idea when we just say it out loud it, it it does it sounds like pixie dust but when you actually start reading the, the science and getting into how does this work it's on a level far beyond my capacity to to completely understand on on a deep 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 level but um starting to engage w- with these ideas it's um Pretty phenomenal what what we're we're starting to see and how we're making sense of human experiences and human movement.
0: Mm, and yeah, I mean, I think uh, I don't think there is, I think it's fair to say not no human understands this um, on a deep level. humanity doesn't understand it yet. Um, and there's actually like quite a, quite a huge amount of evidence on the power of suggestion when it comes to things like uh, pain, opioids. Uh, and, uh, you uh, know, suggestion can in fact abolish the effect of remifentanil, which is a pretty strong opioid. Um, uh, so, you know, if you're given, if you're given remifentanil and told, oh, this will make your pain worse, it actually makes your pain worse. Like not just like reduces the amount of benefit, it, it literally reverses the effect of a strong opioid. Um, and, you know, and that's a, that's, that's a study that, you know, similar, has been replicated in similar kind of studies, you know, opioids with or without being told, you know, if you're given opioids covertly, like people have like an IV drip or cannula, and they're given opioids without being told they're given opioids, and then they are given saline solution and told, oh, this is a strong opioid, the saline solution being told it's a strong opioid is as effective or more effective than the opioid when you're not told, it's a, not an opioid. Uh, so it's like this stuff is just crazy. Um, uh, and so tell us. And I think we have talked about this on the show before, but it's just such an amazing study. Can you regale us, please, with the story of of Lyra Mosley's 2008 um, thinking about movement hurts, um, blowing up study.
1: Yeah. So we're talking about the the CRPS. Yeah. Chronic yeah. um, pain study um yeah so what they did was they they had these people with um complex regional pain syndrome and um just chronic pain as well from from my memory and they strapped down their their affected arm so for these people with crps um who you know had this excruciating pain and symptoms you know in their arm and they strapped them down they put a little measuring device um, on their hand as well so that they could measure swelling and they got a pain rating. And then essentially what they, um, did was got these people to think about a painful movement. So just thinking about it. Now they had, um, EMG on their arms. So essentially they could make sure that this person wasn't actually moving or using that limb whatsoever, and what they saw is just getting people to think about a movement that's painful. First, increased their experience of pain, but secondly, there was an actual immune response where there was actual swelling. So, a significant mm. change in the actual um, diameter of of, of, the, of the finger being measured as well. So, we could see just the uh, this thought had this, you know, not just an impact on that subjective experience, but there's true physiological response in that immune system um, within a short period of time, which is just, you know, insane.
0: It is insane. And there's another study I know of where they did a a study on, I think it was kidney transplant patients who have to go on immunosuppressant therapy so they don't reject the, Mm. the transplant, and they, for some, I don't know how they managed to get ethical approval for this, but they gave some people a placebo. I don't know, maybe they ran out of the drug or something, But and they said, oh, this is a powerful immunosuppressant, and it worked. It suppressed their immune system. Yeah. Like, that's just crazy, yeah. which you think your immune system is well beyond your conscious control.
1: Well, that's it. And when we're talking about placebo, we know that you know that there's conscious components and there's also unconscious um, components to it as well. and. You know, when we're talking about an immune system actually responding, we know that that's unconscious. But, yeah, where it was paired with, like, a, a, a weed-tasting milk, so they actually had the immune suppressant, I think, with, like, a, a some purple-flavoured milk, whatever flavour that would be, and they had it, you know, the first few days. And so, the system was like, yep, and then on the fourth day, they would replace the actual immune suppressant with, the you know, a placebo or just the mm. milk, really. And then they found that the same physiological responses were occurring.
0: So it might have been uh, an element of conditioning in there as well. I wonder how you could tease that out.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, um, yeah, the placebo effects, uh, because multiple pathways in which it works, as we can sort of see f- from that alone, mm. um, is, is complex and um, a real fascinating area.
0: Mm, and I, you know, you've used this example many times. I've, I've heard you use it. But I mean, we, you know, we talk about thinking about moving your hand actually makes your hand swell up. And that sounds like, you know, mind blowing emoji. Okay. Or taking a purple flavored milk suppresses your immune system when you think it's going to. Um, you know, that, and that seems just like so out there. But then it, when you think about it, like we've all had this experience so many times, like think about your favorite food. You know, whether it's like mangoes or ice cream or you know whatever it is, right? Can you imagine a great big, you know, beautiful plate of that food, you know, and just taking that first sniff and and smelling the aroma? Like you're probably salivating already, right? Just from thinking about food, you've had a physiological change in your body, right? It's secreted saliva from your salivary glands. So, like we have this experience all the time, you know, of, of thoughts affecting our physiology. And we take it as just a normal, everyday humdrum thing, right? But then for some reason, in when we think about it in the context of pain, we think, oh, no, that's crazy, that's pixie dust. You know, that's like, oh, woo-woo. You know, it's like, oh, biomechanics is the real, you know, the only, you know, one true way. Um, yeah, I mean, and, I, and I know, dear listener, if that's not you, okay, but you ain't most people. And most people out there still do view it that way.
1: Yeah. Look, and I don't think that's anything to be ashamed about. I mean, for me, like this idea of, you know, it was a similar experiment. It was just like thinking about biting into a piece of lemon and just thinking about that and the juice running around my mouth and imagining that is – I start sweating. I get these, you know – my mouth is full of saliva. Sorry, dear listeners. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I am having a full body response to, yeah, to yeah. you know, just that thought. And if we're fearful, worried, concerned about a movement, why would that be any different? Why would it be any different if someone said something to me or acted in a way that implicitly signaled to me that I was in more danger than what yeah. I actually thought. Yeah. That information is very, very important for me making sense of my experience. Um, so, yeah, it, I don't think it is actually that far removed, but somehow we we do. We delineate those two things mm-hmm. and go, yeah, no, nah, this is woo. This is real life. They're the same thing.
0: Can you talk us through, and this is my like my favourite study. I don't know, it's like one of these ones I just keep coming back to, and I know you've told me it hasn't been replicated yet, but um, And it's like 20 years old, so it's like, okay. <laughs> I'm not sure if someone's tried to replicate it and failed and just you know, then didn't publish it <laughs> or um, whether, yeah, I don't know. But um, that dentist study with the, the Naxalone and the lidocaine or whatever they used.
1: Yeah, yep. Yeah. Um, yeah, so we're actually doing something that's trying to replicate a you know, part of, of this at the moment, which is proving very, very – difficult um but a lot of fun at the same time lots of deception um but essentially it was it was done in the mid 80s um by richard Gracely. and what they did they had dentists that were performing a a molar removal um and we're talking like the the far back molar your m3 and And
0: uh, like i just can't how do they get ethical approval for this
1: Yeah, yeah. So this was probably around the time where ethical approval was becoming more required.
0: (laughs) This is like half a step down from the Milgram experiments, like dental surgery with no anaesthetic.
1: Yeah, Um, and 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 so what they did was they took the the dentists first of all, and they told one group of dentists that, "Hey, you will have a chance of um, using a placebo." analgesia so just like a saline injection or naloxone which is something that makes us more sensitive essentially and then the other group of dentists they said you've got uh, a chance of prescribing or using a placebo analgesia the naloxone so making it more sensitive or a fentanyl which is the analgesic. So, an actual, you can expect that if, you know, that's what you end up using, they'll have pain relief. So, essentially, got one group that had no chance of pain relief in the belief, in the practitioner belief, and one group who there was, you know, a one-third chance that they did have um, pain relief in their group. Now, the twist in this is that they all were given placebo. So, none of them had the naloxone or the fentanyl. All right. So they just manipulated the belief of the dentist. Now, the actual people getting their molars removed, they were told that there's a 50-50 chance that you'll be getting analgesia. So they um, basically had to rely on anything else. But the dentists were not allowed to signal, say anything whatsoever to their patients about what they'd been told.
0: And didn't they have like some kind of independent people watch a video of it and see if they could tell who got the placebo?
1: Yeah. So they filmed it and then – External people had to try and pick what group each dentist was uh, randomized to and they couldn't pick it. So, so there was no explicit cues. There was no words saying, hey, I've got this or this is going to hurt a lot. Um, so the dentist
0: did a good job of pretending that they were giving them the fentanyl, right?
1: Correct, yeah. So it seems that way. And regardless, the amount of pain that the patients getting these teeth removed Experienced was strongly associated with what the practitioner had been told. So even though they're all given placebo, if there was a chance that that practitioner was prescribing a analgesic, a pain relieving, um, injection, then those patients experienced significantly less pain than the other group where the practitioner believed that there was no chance of prov- providing analgesia. And it's just like, how does that work? And, and it's just phenomenal. And I think one of those studies for me that was like, I need to know more about this. We need to investigate what's going on because we're, we're at the very beginning of understanding how complex these therapeutic interactions are and the information and, and uh components of it that are really influencing the patient in the way that they're experiencing just subjective pain for one, but also then perceptions of body and then their behavior.
0: Mm. So practitioner beliefs do influence not just the patient or the client's uh, beliefs, but also their, like literally their pain and potentially, you know, lots of other stuff like inflammation, um, you know, muscle tone, you know, movement strategies, et cetera, uh, which in turn can influence pain inflammation muscle tone and movement strategies
1: <laughs> everything right yeah so yeah very wow. interesting
0: so uh all right so if so all right so and again i'm I'm totally making this up there's n- zero science you know about this but um you know if you're a level if you want to be a level one practitioner okay all you do is like give movements and activate muscles and stretch certain things. And, and there's a real value in that. The world needs a lot more of it because we have a sedentary behavior epidemic and an obesity epidemic and a preventable, you know, lifestyle-based disease epidemic. So like if all you do is just get people moving, like you're a superhero, you know, because you're saving lives and, and you know, making the world a better place. Yeah, beautiful. Love. Um, and the next level if you want to level up, um, you can level up to level two, which is where you become a certified uh, biopsychosocial practitioner, and you uh, empower your clients, uh, you know, to with higher self efficacy, and you encourage them to move fearlessly, and you, you know, don't micromanage their movements, and you know, all of those. You use your you use your words carefully. You help them make sense of of their pain and their you know, um, you know, their experience in an empowering way that le- leaves them expecting to recover and and, and all of that. Um, and so that's level two. And you do that through the use of conscious strategies like the words that you choose and the exercises that you choose and all of that stuff. Then a level three practitioner, which I'm going to call the Dalai Lama <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, or Patabi uh, Joist, is where basically you might not say much of anything, although you might give them the occasional high five or point out how awesome they're going, um, but you basically just th- know they're going to get better and all they need to do is get moving and not worry about it, and um, then they do. Did- <laughs> what do you think? Is that a, is that a new certification program?
1: <laughs> oh, mate, we can make some money from this. Um, yeah, level three training. That sounds great. Um,
0: Does it work over telehealth though? level three.
1: Oh, for sure surely it does um oh, i reckon there's lots of non-specific effects going on right now even between the <laughs> two of us raf um but yeah no I, I i think that's a nice way to kind of separate out some of these things in terms of our own learning and development the way we think about things is yeah when we kind of you know do our you know first course out of the box and start to engage with people yeah it, it can be quite superficial and we're just trying to get people moving and figure things out, and that's fantastic. That's great. And I think you're absolutely right. There's no shame in that. You will naturally start building on that. And the more you start sort of engaging with, you know, biopsychosocial ideas, either on social media or reading about it, this podcast and and, and so on, the more you'll well, just the, kind of… Of course,
0: with the knowledge exchange. You know, the of the knowledge exchange. T-K-E-X. Yeah.
1: <laughs> um, or, or breathe. Um, and you know, you're going to move into, uh, you know, level two, probably quite, quite naturally as well. And I think within that, you'll, you'll start to get a bit of a, an idea or have some experiences go I don't understand what's going on there. And I think that's where the level three practitioner, um, which is how much are we going to charge for this course?
0: Well, I think, yes, yeah, so level one practitioner, I think that's that's where you come in and we teach you how to activate all the muscles and stand in neutral spine and in you know, all of the things actually we used to uh, that's that certification is uh, no longer offered um, if actually if I was going to offer a level 1 certification now well I, we do actually offer a level 1 certification and it is basically just here's how to get people moving right? It's, yeah. here's, here's how to get people moving. Here's how to get them out of breath. Here's how to get them to a point of near muscular fatigue. So they're going to get stronger. Here's how to, you know, so it's just those things. Uh And then level two, yeah, that's more involved because you've got to learn more things. You've got to learn how to build a therapeutic alliance. You've got to mm. learn how to, you know, use empowering language. You've got to learn how to use verbal suggestions. You've got to learn how to, you know, do like, like um patient focused care and all of that stuff. So I reckon that'd be a year program. And then the, A level three program, I don't know. I think you just meditate on a mountaintop for a decade, and then
1: (laughs) in a a dark cave uh, for a while. But um, yeah, I mean, coming back to you know that that stage three, I I think you know the things that we can do to you know to challenge this is just think about you know what are our beliefs around movement. What are some of the things that we do, and maybe even with permission, film some of your sessions and then just watch back or have someone else watch back and go, Hey, you know, what did you think of this? Do you feel like I created, um, you know, um, you know, a a space or for this person to explore movement, to get curious around movement And, and so on and reflect and then go, I wonder why I cued them to be neutral in all of those poses or activities and just go, how how would I do it differently what do I do myself maybe I've I've got to go load myself a little bit first and really explore some of these things in my own world before I'm going to truly implicitly believe that this is how it works and, and goes on because I want to say all the right things and I am already that's great but how do I truly believe it and, and maybe it is about our own self-exploration wow this is sounding like a real meditative sort of course now but we will be charging exorbitant amounts for it because there's non-specific effects in that as well, where you'll get more out of it if we charge more money. It's true. It's yeah. true, people.
0: Um, so yeah, I think I'm seeing it like a sort of a vipassana style uh, thing where you basically come to a course. It's ten days, no words are spoken, and <laughs> all we do is is fully flex deadlifts, uh, you know, every day. <laughs> um, yeah. No. All right. So that's, this is just a joke, but. Um, so, yeah, I, I agree. I think that the path to, you know, the path to that genuine fearlessness is has to lie through what you said at the start about um, just experiencing it and experimenting with it and finding like, oh, I've I lifted with a rounded back. The world didn't explode. I've still got all my discs, you know, life goes on. Um, and, or I did, you know, overhead press with my shoulders elevated and I'm still okay after that, you know, or whatever. So you, you can just have those behavioural experiments and gradually build up confidence. Like, oh, well, now I've done it 10,000 times. I know I'm fine with that, you know, through experience. And so there comes a point where you actually can't, it's not, you don't even have to think about it. It's just like self evident in your you know, experience. And I think also, like you say, that re- the path of, path of reflection and videoing yourself is freaking know, very confronting a lot of the time, but it's really, really valuable because you pick up stuff that you're not even aware that you're saying, like, you know, you just notice stuff like, holy crap, I say, um a lot, you know, (laughs) or whatever. And I know I've got all those little verbal tics, um, dear listener, but um, this is not about getting rid of all of your verbal tics, it's about the verbal tics that you use in class around neutral spine and muscle activation and safety and knees behind toes and, all of those other things that we all used to say um, or still say. Mm. So I think that's something that fear is something we've all internalized from our, you know, formative years and something that for for many of us was actually explicitly, you know, imparted to us as part of our training and the research literature. Like if you read any paper from like pre-2005, it's it starts with the assumption that back pain is caused by by (laughs) biomechanics and then proceeds (laughs) from there, you know. Um, so, you know, so I think that's been in the water for a long time culturally for us. And so we're, we're struggling to shed that garment. But, um, I think also there, I, I suspect there's an, there's an, I, I don't suspect this. I know this because people have said it to me explicitly that there's an element of a sense of like professional expertise or the, the value of what you do. It's like, well, if, if, if I've got a four year degree in exercise physiology, and you're coming to me and paying me $120 for a session, right? And literally all I do is say, do some push-ups, Brendan. You're looking awesome. Okay, do another set, right? And I don't give you any tips on your freaking muscle activation or Q neutral spine. It's like, well, what the fuck are you paying me for? You know, like and what was all those what was all those what were all those years of university for? You know? And the irony is, I think that for my personal journey, it's like only once I did all of that university and read all of those research papers and learned all of that anatomy and physiology and biomechanics that I realized actually that's not what makes the difference. <laughs> and it's, it's the Dalai Lama stuff that make, it's, it's the genuinely being happy that your client is moving, however they're moving, you know, that's what makes the difference. And what you cue them or whatever, you know, unless you're, unless you're working, even when you're working with an elite athlete, it's, Anyway, I don't want to get into that sort of things, but I think it's there's some kind of level of professional, I don't know, pride or something, where we feel like, well, what the fuck am I doing if I'm if I'm not doing any of that stuff, you know, like <laughs> what do I do? Do I literally just say nothing?
1: Yeah, um, that's a really good point, isn't it? And, and it's coming back to what does you know someone coming to see as value? Why are they there? Um, and you shared with me many years ago, a video of Bernard, is it Bernard Roth? Yeah. Um, design he talks thinking. About. Uh, yeah, yeah, using, you know, design yeah. thinking and, and essentially on problem solving. Um, and I found that such a, such a great resource. And I revisit that all the time about framing, you know, what is the problem? And I think a lot of the time what we try and focus on in the clinic or, um, in in whatever context we're working in, we're not actually focusing on the problem. We're focusing on elements that we think are associated with solving the problem. So, things like they just want to be able to start, you know, picking up their grandchildren again, all right, if that's what it is. And then where they're giving them glued activation exercises, we're not actually working necessarily on the problem. And when we look at the data, it's, you know, it might be helpful to get them back to it, but it doesn't need to happen that way either if we want to get them back to you know picking up their children again we can go well how does that look is there another way we can help them to pick up their child can we find opportunities to start gradually uh, exposing them to that movement maybe without their child to begin with and then increasing a a load with a weight and then picking up that child like so what i'm getting at is that If that individual can see how what you are doing in your um, engagement with each other is associated with actually achieving what their their issue is, then they're going to have value in what you do. So, we don't need to say, oh, we need to get your glutes working. We can be like, okay, let's see what you can currently tolerate and let's start chipping away and getting you back to doing that thing without necessarily all of these other narratives that we've learnt that are, like you said, are based on probably a lot of assumptions that aren't, you know, um, you know real things. Um, and, and so, we can really change what we're doing. But you're right, it's hard because we're trying to shed this cultural component to everything we're being taught in the past and start – engaging slightly differently with, with these people. But I think if we engage on what they see as being valuable, what their problem is, then we can actually have them completely engaged, see huge value in what we do without having to do very specific, arbitrary things within what we do.
0: Mm. Um And that, well, I love that word specific because I think it gets thrown around way too much in the movement uh, space, but people aren't, often don't mean anything very specific by it, ironically. Um, and I love what you said there about basically, you know, v- most of the time people come to an exercise professional when they have chronic musculoskeletal pain, because there's been some sort of inciting event that was, you know, often people have had it for months, years or decades and they've put up with it. People put up with a lot of stuff. And then there's come some you know, event where they're like, they realize like, oh no crap, I've got to do something about this. And it's because one day they can't pick up their grandkid and they're like, oh no, this is really, this is, I, I can't just, you know, soldier on through this anymore. I've got to do something about this because it's actually impacting something that's really meaningful to me. Or maybe I can't ride my bicycle to work or I can't play sports or I can't sit for three hours in a movie with my wife or, you know, whatever it is. There's some, you know, triggering event that sort of Catalyzes that person to think, oh, this is no longer just an a, like a niggle, or, a, 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 an irritation. This is now something I need to act on. I need to solve, and so that becomes the, you know, and you can uncover that pretty easily at the start of a, a, a session by saying, you know, so what prompted you to come in and see me today? What's the one thing you'd like to get back to? If you didn't have this pain, what would be the first thing you'd like to start doing again, etc. So you can you can you can ask you can ask them those sorts of questions. And then it's like, oh, if I want to pick up my grandkids, well, what's the best way to get good at picking up your grandkids? Pick up your grandkids, you know. And if you can't yet pick up your grandkids, pick up a smaller, lighter, easier version of your grandkids and then build it up, you know. And and that is like exercise science 101. Like that's what they teach you, you know, lesson one, day one of first year of exercise science is like the principle of specificity specific adaptations to impose demands. It's like exactly what you train is exactly what you get good at. And so if you want to get good at this specific thing, guess what? the best thing to train to get good at that specific thing? That specific thing. That's <laughs> like – and and like when I think about it, it's like that seems too easy. That seems too simple, you know. It's like no, that's – there's no rule that says it has to be complicated.
1: No, absolutely. And And it's interesting because it's like – even though we're taught that and I think probably most listeners can be like, yeah, that's exactly what I was taught that that is often contradicted then with everything that comes. Yeah, after. I want to pick
0: up my grandkids. Oh, let's do glute activation exercises. Then that'll help you. It's like, uh, hold on, yeah, how do you get
1: <laughs> that far away from such a great, simple principle that, you know, makes sense, but yeah. Interesting. Isn't it?
0: Yeah. It's crazy. Um, uh, yeah, so when you said about that about picking up the grandkids, I thought of Milo of Croton, who's this famed wrestler of ancient Greece who famously got strong by um, picking up a baby calf. And then he picked it up every day and carried it around. And, of course, as the calf grew, it got heavier and heavier. And then so Milo got stronger and stronger. And that was basically the the idea of progressive overload. And he got really strong from picking up that calf and eventually could carry around the full-grown bull, which weighs a freaking ton, literally. Um, so I don't know, it's just a apocryphal story, but it's a nice story anyway. Um, and so you could pick up your grandkids and then by the time they're full-grown adults, you'll still be picking them up, no problem.
1: Yep, beautiful. I've got a five-month-old and I'm strapping him to my chest and going everywhere on every walk. And I might just try and do the same thing. He'll be 22 and feet dragging along, but strapped to my chest and we'll yeah. see how we're going. <laughs>
0: Uh, Well, this has been awesome, Brendan. Thanks so much for coming on.
1: Yeah, mate. It's been an absolute pleasure.
0: After two exercise science degrees and over a decade and a half of reading research daily, I've condensed all the current science on rehab into a program called the Clinical Exercise Specialist Rehabilitation. Inside the program, I'll teach you to do three things. One, deeply understand how the body works. Two, confidently and expertly rehab literally any client. And three, get results for your clients. So ultimately, your clients tell their friends, and you become known as the go to expert in your area. This is a life-changing program, not some weekend certification. I've put my heart and soul into building this and I can't wait to share it with you and help you discover your genius for anatomy and rehab. Now, because of the highly interactive nature of this program, we're only taking on 12 students worldwide. The program starts on March the 1st, and the first 12 qualified people to apply will be allowed to enroll. So if you're interested in learning more, click the link in the show notes and download the course guide or go to breathe-education.com and click on the clinical certification menu in uh, link in the top menu. That's breathe-education.com and click on the clinical certification link in the top menu.